2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll look at verses uh, 1 through 10 this morning. The question I have is, how does believing in heaven motivate us to live? How does believing in heaven motivate us to live? Most of the time, when we think of heaven, we think of the clips that we have seen in movies. It's a place with bright lights. Everyone's dressed in white robes. Everyone has a halo or angel's wings. Peter is the gatekeeper, and God either looks like Father Time or Morgan Freeman. Sometimes we think of it as heaven is sort of this resort, in, like Florida resort of retired people. And when we think of those image, images, we say, how is that supposed to motivate me? It seems very boring. It seems very dull. How is it something that we're to look forward to? Now, I think some of these images exist because for us, heaven is a hard, hard to imagine. And scripture actually doesn't give us a ton of detail of what heaven's going to be like. So we're forced to come up with what we think it should be or we, we want it to be. And this is where I want to urge you to be careful with books that tell us what heaven is like. I feel like every five years or so, there's a New York Times best-selling Christian book about someone dying and coming back to life and telling us what heaven is like. And then what you have is many churchgoers get excited and they read books like that and they say, now I know what heaven is like because I've read this book about someone who's died and come back to life and they told us about about it. Let me just tell you, no, you don't, all right? No, you don't. As believers, we're called to base what we believe about God in Scripture. Integrity, we say it like this. The most important, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. We can't base what we believe on a person's experience, specifically when it, comes, when it claims to say something that Scripture does not. Jesus himself doesn't say much about heaven. In fact, Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven. However, it's interesting is when Jesus mentions heaven, he often uses heaven to motivate those who would follow him. And and this is also what we see about Paul. Paul uses heaven to motivate believers to follow him. That's what we're going to see in the text this morning. So my goal today is for us to basically see how heaven should motivate us to live our lives. And so what you have in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5, Paul is dealing with a church that is afraid to suffer. In chapter 4, he reminds them that our lives are vessels that hold the most precious treasure. And the most precious treasure is the glory of God of the gospel revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the thinking behind Paul's arguments in these chapters is if you know the gospel, your goal is to sacrifice your life so that others would know it and so that others would see it themselves. And so Paul's goal here is not to show them that they're losing something for following Christ. Rather, Paul's goal here is to show them what they are gaining for following Christ, what the sacrifices cause them to gain in following Christ. And so this is what we're going to see here in chapter 5. Start me, Will, in verse 1. The Word of God says this, 2 Corinthians 5.1, for we know, we know that if the tent that was our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. 
among the early church, there was this sort of common view that heaven was real. Paul speaks of it as it were a universal truth. He says, we know. In other words, every believer should know that we have confidence that there's something greater that lies ahead. And this speaks against even our culture. Many in our culture cringe at the thought of heaven. They, they cringe and they would argue that heaven was uh, written in the Bible in a time where people were going through great persecution. So Heather, uh, heaven was used just to sort of uh, be a coping mechanism for people. And many people have thought that heaven is just bad for life on earth. Karl Marx, the philosopher in the 1800s, said that religion is the opium of the people because it enabled the rich to oppress the poor by saying, don't worry about injustice here, heaven is coming. Some environmentalists say that we got to shake off this idea of heaven or we'll never take care of this earth. We have to embrace the fact that this earth is all that there is. What a sad place to live. John Lennon, when he broke off from the Beatles and he did a solo thing, he encouraged people, imagine there's no heaven. It's pretty easy if you try. That's what he argues. And some will argue that Christians are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. But the Bible actually says the opposite. It is the most heavenly minded people who are the most earthly good. Heaven gives us a reason for doing things sacrificially here on earth. And furthermore, heaven wasn't an idea just for those who were persecuted. It was frequently talked about throughout the Old and the New Testament. And Paul uses this idea here in a unique way. He uses this word to describe our time on earth as a tent. It's a tent. The tent would be our bodies on this earth versus our bodies in heaven. There are several theories on why Paul uses this phrase. Most scholars would agree that this analogy is sort of personal for Paul. Many places where Paul traveled and preached or planted churches, he was supported by other churches. However, in Corinth, Paul actually took on an occupation. If you remember back in Acts 18, the very beginning when Paul tells the narrative of, or Luke tells the narrative of Paul planting the church of Corinth, it talks about uh, Paul joining Aquila and Priscilla, and they had the same uh, job, and it was to be a tent maker. And what I love about Paul is he went from being one of the most religious elite of his day to almost being sort of this blue-collar pastor. He worked a trade in Corinth so that the gospel would advance. And what was his trade? He was a tent maker. And so when he uses this, this phrase, tent, he's talking about something that, that was very precious to him, that, that, that they knew him as this preaching tent maker. And I love the analogy because he's saying, this is sort of my personal connection with you, but, but more so he's comparing our bodies here on earth in comparison to the eternal life in heaven for those who would believe. A tent would be a, used for a temporary living space. If you've ever been on a camping trip and you've slept in a tent, you've slept in a tent for multiple days, maybe you have that one little rock that you can't find, keeps hurting your back, and you're outside and you're dirty and you're in a tent. It doesn't have a bathroom. It doesn't have a sink. 
Does it have running water? Does it have AC? Does it have really good air unless you have that little thing that opens up? And, and what's the first thing you say when you get home? I want to take a shower and I want to sleep in my bed. Why? You don't want to stay in a tent forever. Tents weren't made to last. They rot quicker than our homes. Over time, they leak. You ever been in a tent that leaks? That's Paul's point. He's saying we shouldn't get too comfortable here in our bodies. Want to know why you have cavities? It's because your teeth are rotting. You know why? Candy, yes. Coffee, yes. Coke, definitely. But it is because your body is a tent. It's not supposed to laugh. Last laugh. This is why it's so fitting what Paul says next. Look in verse 2. He says this. For in this tent we groan. In our bodies we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Notice what he says here. We groan in our bodies so that we later receive our new bodies. When he uses this phrase, further clothed in order not, further clothed in order not to be found naked or unclothed, he's referring to the intermediate state in which believers' spirits are with God, but they are not yet to have enjoyed their resurrected bodies. Not exactly sure how that works. It's a great discussion if you're in a small group. Ask your small group leader. Either way, it's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is we will have glorified bodies in heaven. Philippians chapter 3, Paul captures this idea in verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him uh, even to subject all things to himself. His point in both places is although that our bodies will groan here on earth, although our bodies are rotting away, we will await new bodies. My first car that I received when I was 17 years old was a 1984 T-top Chevrolet Camaro. That was an old car for me, okay? I just want to clarify, I'm not that old, okay? My dad bought it for me for $500. The odometer said it was 150,000 miles when we bought it, and that's what the owner told us. I'm pretty sure that that thing went around more than once. I'm pretty sure it was probably 250,000 miles. And so I became an expert at cranking a car early in the morning and praying that the Holy Spirit would cause that thing to crank. Because I would just push the gas. Push the gas. Okay, we don't want to flood it. We got to wait. It's flooded. And then we got to wait. Wait again. And then finally crank that car up. Smoke's coming out. You know, the engine's just this nasty, stinky. So everybody in the neighborhood's woken up. And I would drive... And I would always try to rig that thing up to make it work. Cheap fixes because it wasn't that valuable. 
had locks on the doors that didn't lock right. So um, in order for me, I, I never kept anything valuable in my car because I just left it unlocked. Because if you lock it, the key wouldn't actually open it. It was before all the you know, beep, beep stuff would happen. And so what I had to do is when I had something valuable in the car, I would lock it. And then in order to go back into the car, I would have to open the hatchback and crawl through it. And it was a T-top, so it leaked crazy. And so I always had duct tape up on the T-top trying to stop it or caulk. I tried to put caulk on there. When you have duct tape and caulk in a car, you've given up. (laughs) And this is what was happening with me. I was like, okay, you can do all the things that you want to this car. It is going to die. And it died. It's exactly what happened. It's exactly the same with our body. You can do whatever you want to stay alive as long as possible. And you should. You should be a good steward. And you should try to be here as long as you can on earth, as healthy as you can. You try to eat healthy. You should try to exercise. However, everything in your life that you try to do to live forever is just duct tape. Because in reality, we're fading away. We seek to be further clothed with new bodies that will last. How should this motivate us to live our lives? Paul, throughout Paul's writing, this is what he used as a motivating factor in how we live this life. He constantly encouraged the church by talking about the afterlife. Perhaps the most popular Easter sermon is preached from 1 Corinthians 15. And this is where false teachers in in Corinth were coming in and denying Jesus' physical resurrection from the grave. And, And so in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul begins to ask this rhetorical question. If you don't believe that Jesus has physically risen from the grave, let's just break down what it would look like if Jesus never physically rose from the grave. And so he says this in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 31. He says, I protest my brothers... By my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought the beast at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, then he says this, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we'll die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as if right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. And there was this idea, Paul uses this phrase, eat, drink, for tomorrow we'll die. There's this idea in Corinth that people would say because they didn't believe in the afterlife. They said, we're just going to absorb everything that we can on this earth because the end really doesn't matter. This is all we have. That was the idea in Corinth. This is the idea that Paul's dealing with in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And so when Paul confronts this idea, he's reminding them, no, when you see the afterlife, you won't have this idea of absorbing. You'll have this idea of sacrificing because you look to see a better day. And he's making the statement, if Jesus didn't resurrect, we would just continue to sin. This is how someone who has no knowledge of God and no knowledge of heaven lives. So to John Lennon's song, Imagine There's No Heaven, what motive would people have for true sacrifice if that were the case? They would die 
They, they may die in the calls of sacrifice and the betterment of others, but they were doing it in spite of everything they claimed to believe. You don't even have to imagine a world where people live without a knowledge of heaven. That's exactly the world that Paul lived in. That's exactly the Greco-Roman world. It didn't make people nicer to believe that there wasn't heaven. It didn't make people better. It didn't make them kinder or more generous to others to believe that there was no heaven. It made them selfish and focused on getting all they could for the here and now. And historians have written about the generosity of believers, even in that time. Why? Because they had a view of heaven. They had an eternal view. Randy Stark wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. In this book, he makes a statement that what made Christians different and the reason that they stayed in these horrific plagues in the year 150 A.D. and 250 A.D., in the city of Rome that killed upwards to 30,000 people a day was Christians' belief in the afterlife. What Rodney Stark is showing is not necessarily that Christians were better. He's just showing you that Christians have the best doctrine to be the most earthly of good. What made the church of Corinth so different They believed in this heavenly perspective. So looking to heaven, it does change the way we live, but it also gives us this confidence that we live now, what we look forward to. Verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the, what's the word? Spirit as a guarantee. Isn't that good? So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For if we walk by faith, for for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Notice the bold language that Paul's Uh, is using here. He uses the phrase, we are always of good courage, two times in this text. He says, we walk by faith, not by sight. What gives us this boldness? Rather, who gives us this boldness? If you look in verse 5, he says, he has prepared us this very thing, who has given us the Spirit as our guarantee. Paul emphasizes the Holy Spirit in our salvation. And the point of that is to show us that salvation belongs to the Lord. Yes, you are saved. Yes, it is your salvation, but it's more his salvation because he did it. And so he says, hey, look, the Holy Spirit, this is your guarantee. It's not your works aren't your guarantee. The Holy Spirit's your guarantee, completely different. And when Paul even, when he argues um, the Trinity in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, he does the exact same thing. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. Does it sound like our salvation or his? It sounds like his, right? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to, to the praise of his glory. In him 
You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit, who is the what? Guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What Paul is saying here is that there is no possible way that our salvation is lost. Meaning, once saved, always saved. See the role of the Trinity here in the text? The Father, he did what? He predestined us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. What does the Son do? The Son, he is the gospel of our salvation. He is the mediator that we put our faith in. What does the Holy Spirit do? He says he seals us. He seals us And he's the guarantee of our inheritance. How do you know if you have the Holy Spirit? Paul says, believe the gospel. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. How do you know if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? You have a changed life. So to follow Paul's reasoning in Ephesians chapter 1, if you're chosen by God, you will believe in the gospel through repentance of sin And surrendering your life to Christ. You believe in the sacrificial death on the cross. That Christ accomplished your salvation on the cross. And if you believe the gospel, biblically speaking, Paul says, you will have the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He causes you to live out the Christian life. The Holy Spirit makes you more like Jesus. And if you really believe in heaven, you're going to live like you're going there. Because you have the Holy Spirit. The only way that you can do this is if you have the Holy Spirit. In other words, you can't live like hell and get to heaven. It's not the attitude of a believer. A true believer has the Holy Spirit who sustains us to the very end. And this is why Paul talks about this changed life in the next two verses, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away... We make it our aim to please him. See that? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In heaven, we will spend eternity worshiping Christ. What does that look like? I have no idea. Scripture isn't clear on this. Honestly, When God speaks to us about heaven, it is only in ways that we can understand. For instance, we don't know if there are literally streets of gold like Revelation talks about. We don't know if there's literally mansions or how big they are. I just think it's the way that it's described so that we, as mortal men and women, could understand it. But I do know this. We will worship Christ forever. And so when Paul says, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, he's saying, we don't have to wait to glorify him then. We can start doing that now. And if we're believers, we will start doing that now. Because we can't clearly describe heaven, here's what we can know for sure. When we get to heaven, if you're a believer in Christ, we will finally see That every time we said no to sin, it was absolutely worth it. 
And sometimes I think there is this view that God is some sort of cosmic killjoy. And he's telling us what to do and what not to do because he's sort of this control freak. But ultimately, God is not trying to keep us from being gratified. Rather, he knows that what is here, this life here, this temporary life here, can never fully gratify us. And this is why Jesus is always telling his disciples what the kingdom of God is like. He wants them to see there is more to look forward to. So heaven is just delayed gratification. Looking forward to heaven is delayed gratification. We know that we'll be fully gratified there, and we look forward to that day. C.S. Lewis describes this well in this analogy. He says, Our dissatisfaction with time argues for the fact that we were created for eternity. Do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Or if they did, would not that fact strongly suggest that they have not been or were not destined to be aquatic creatures? We long to step out of the sea of a time onto the land of eternity. If I find myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the best argument is that I was created for another world. The beauty of being in heaven isn't just the fact that we'll receive this delayed gratification or satisfaction. The beauty of heaven is the fact that we get to be in the presence of Jesus. Verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Many have read this passage to mean that there's sort of this line that you get into heaven with a long list of, he talks to every single person, there's this long list of everything that you've done well and everything you've done wrong and you're, you're publicly put to shame for the things that you didn't do right and then you receive these crowns for all these things that you've done for Christ. And I always struggle with that idea because I've, I've heard, okay, Jesus forgives you. Okay, I'm like, Okay, if Jesus forgives me, why is he going to bring all that junk up before I, he lets me in heaven? It seems like opposite of what the character of God is like. So how do we explain this? Well, I want you to understand what's happening here. Happening here. Again, Paul is using analogy, an analogy in terms that only they could understand. Corinth understood Roman government. They understood this sort of judicial system. That made sense to them. You stand before a judge and he looks at what you've done versus uh, good and bad. But our bad works, believers, they're already judged. Our bad works were already put on the cross. Jesus already died for our sins, past, present, and future. And Paul, he captures this idea in 1 Corinthians 3. I'll read it for you. Verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will uh, become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. For the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. 
If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, what Paul is saying is, your good works and your bad works, all the things that you've done, you can't boast in anything that you've done for Christ because Christ did it through you. The things that you did that were evil, the things that you did were against the gospel. He said, the spirit burns it up. It won't come to you on the final day of judgment. So when you get to heaven, what God sees in you is what Christ did for you. It's not a system where we get these bigger crowns. I get all these extra crowns because I had all these obedient things and I get to brag about all the crowns that I've received and I get to throw them back at the foot of Jesus. Rather, we have, he uses it singular, a reward. And that reward is Christ. The reward that we receive is Christ. That's the point of heaven. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. And this is why I struggle with so many modern books attempting to describe what heaven is like. The majority aren't about Jesus. Most of the time when people describe heaven, it's about meeting relatives, which I do believe happens, but it's not the point. Jesus is the point of heaven. Jesus is the center of it all. I remember hearing John Piper once pose this great question. If you get to heaven and Jesus isn't there, would you be disappointed? If you're disappointed, that's a problem, right? Because he's kind of the point. He's the prize. In Christ, everything that you've longed for will be found in Christ in heaven. Everything that you've ever needed will be found in heaven. Every bit of love that you've wanted to receive, you receive it in heaven with Christ. Even that relative that you've missed, it won't be anything close to the joy that you'll find in Christ in heaven. And some ask, well, is there marriage in heaven? Will our kids be our kids? Will we have our pets in heaven? I have no idea how these exchanges will happen, but I know this. You will be perfectly content in the presence of Christ. I can't tell you all the details of heaven because scripture does not show us what they are. But I can promise you a few great truths from scripture as we close. Great truth number one. You, will be so fully, you won't be fully satisfied here. This world wasn't made for that purpose. So if we're not going to be fully satisfied here, we might as well make our life about Christ. Point number two, everything you do for Christ here will absolutely be worth it in heaven. Number three, everything you enjoy now is just a small taste of what you will receive in the presence of Christ. And Paul wants them to see this, these truths. That helps them live this life for Christ. That helps them endure the suffering that they will inevitably face and that you and I will inevitably face. We endure suffering because we know that this is just a small, anything that we've enjoyed is just a small taste from actually being in the presence of Christ. So this morning, do you long for that? Do you want to live your life that way? Do you want to be what 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please 
him? Where in your life right now are you struggling to please him? Where in your life right now are you trying to build your own tent and trying to make this tent last and satisfy you and bring joy to you? Let me tell you, it won't. It won't. Everything here, everything here we sacrifice so that one day we'll be in the presence of our king. We'll have full access to the Father. Feel fully loved and fully satisfied. This is all about this delayed gratification that we long for. Where we get to heaven and we know that every time we said no to sin, it was worth it. It was worth it. May that be us this morning. May that be us, Integrity Church. Let's pray.